everyone, and thank you for listening to Brain Foods, the podcast on women change makers. I'm your host, Hannah Becker, and today I have the great pleasure to introduce you to Amy. Welcome, Amy. It's a pleasure to have you here at Brain Foods. Thanks, Hannah. Would you be so nice to introduce yourself a little bit? What brought you to be part of the Brain Foods podcast? Yeah, so I love that you had this idea um, and we were talking about it even last year. But um, my introduction of myself is that I um, work for a real estate private equity company in the US. I am also a master's student at UCL at the Bartlett School for um, Infrastructure Investment and Financing. So I'm really interested in um, not only smart cities, but the general use of the built environment, both real estate and infrastructure, um, as a means to physically, economically, and socially develop the world um, to be a better place. Talking about digital solutions such as smart cities for a more sustainable future, what's your personal goal and take on smart cities? I think right now where we're at with all the research and what's been um, built so far, which is not much, is this ideal utopic area where yeah, it's autonomous vehicles, deliveries are underground, your trash is sucked into a portal and everything's you know, uber efficient. And this doesn't exist right now. It's always good to have have a dream about what it could be. It can definitely improve quality of life. There's e-health, there's e-education, there's um, you know, fewer emissions and better quality of life, including community and walkability and something in real estate that also in the past 10 years has been a buzzword, um, so to call it, is mixed use. So nobody wants all the houses to be in one area and then Mm -hmm. the central business district with all the businesses and offices to be in one area. They want this mix of hotels, retail, um, residential, and then also office and as well as green space. So there's already a huge movement towards this, this better life and the better city and then using technology in order to mainly achieve that sustainability. I love that concept. That's why I'm going to be building smart cities around the world. Personally, what has been planned versus what has been built, there's a huge gap because when you're imagining something so utopic, it's impossible to get the funding for it, um, to get government support on data data privacy. You know, Google, Alphabet started Sidewalk Labs um, in 2014 and their pilot project in Canada failed because the government of Toronto wasn't willing to accept the terms of mostly of data collection. A lot of that big data is necessary for this for these innovations to work on you know traffic efficiency and all that, um, ubiquitous Wi-Fi. And my theory is that you need to start smaller with smaller chunks of improving existing cities. And if you're building from scratch, you also need to start smaller in terms of what your vision will be and what's truly possible in the next 
five years versus the next 10, 15. And then we can sort of visualize the future, but then have little baby steps to get there. Yeah, I mean, these little baby steps, as you say, seem to be very, very necessary because it's such a complex infrastructure. And as you describe, there is so much uncertainty about what a smart city really can bring as value to to society. I, I imagine it's quite difficult to explain that to any type of regulator or investor. Uses innovative technology to optimize and efficient, all, uh, to make everything efficient, all, all the systems within that big data. The sustainability aspect of lowering emissions is mm -hmm. essential. And Yeah, I would say the third element of a smart city is cohesiveness and cohesion yeah. between um, public and private sectors as well as citizens. So this concept of everyone working together, people talk about having one card where that's your citizen identity card of living in this smart city. And, um, you know, it can you can use it to pay for groceries, but then you can also use it for public transit. Um, and that requires a lot of coordination between the public yeah. and private sectors. Wow, I would love the idea to just go around uh, my own city. I'm, I'm based in Copenhagen with one city, with one car that I could use to go into my apartment to use public transportation to just really get around the city much easier. It sounds like a huge undertaking, but also as if it would make life much simpler. What are some of the key benefits um, that you can see with switching towards smart cities? So I wouldn't even consider it to be a switch um, because technology is always improving. You know, we never really switched from horses to cars. It just, um, you know, Technology and innovation naturally has this flow of changing the way that we live and changing our built environment. Um, so the benefits are are clear, I think, in, in what's proposed um, in terms of ease, ease of life, quality of life, um, the way that a city is designed to reduce commuting times, like you mentioned, um, to have to have to reduce waste, um, to have more green space, which a lot of cities don't have now, um, and the commute times is also very traffic related. It's very much transportation, um, cycling lanes, um, using you know smart home systems mm -hmm. as well to be able to even connect your car to your home and the parking garage. Um, to have cameras that ensure safety so that you can leave your child on the playground for hours. They can run around outside and also even, you know, take public transit to get back home because all the systems are um, watching, which I would say a lot of people would say is the counter benefit. That would have been exactly my next question, uh, talking about the benefits, having having one card access access to all. I mean, if I would lose that card and it would get into the wrong hands, what would be the trade-off of having such a cohesive infrastructure in place? The cybersecurity element, I think, so far has been undervalued 
in probably in budgets, um, in political conversations, because the cybersecurity is also directly linked to how much do citizens trust their government or corporations with this data, with what they're going to do with this data, but also how they're going to protect this data. Um, and that's something that we've been facing with since the age of the internet, right? Like yeah. from online shopping and there was a time where nobody wanted to put their credit card number into a website to buy something. Um, that has obviously changed a little bit in the recent years. Yeah, exactly. And my view on these these concerns is it's very dependent on which corporation you're trusting, which government mm. you're trusting um, with your data, um, but also that it's a little bit inevitable that we will eventually get to a point in society where it's not even a card, it's our biometrics, it's going to be our fingerprint, it's going to be face ID, I, like eyeball ID. Um, we're not, and we're also not eventually not going to be able to have a choice in this because governments, I think, in my opinion, whether it's 50 or 100 or 200 years from now, mm. we'll eventually have the technology where it's so easy to install cheap cameras everywhere, to have everything connected, to constantly be surveilling us, um, which people are scared of because of 1984 and Big Brother and all these um, valid reasons to mistrust the government or distrust the government. Um, but I see technological improvements as inevitable. So better to work with them and to control um, our involvement in policies, shaping what governments and corporations can do in personally being part of the corporate side of things to ensure like ethical use of data and protection of it. Yeah, that sounds like there's these three major um, trade-offs. Having talked about all the benefits is the surveillance um, possibilities through these smart technologies. And then, of course, also the vulnerability towards um, cyber cyber attacks, frauds with these types of cards or um, one solution for everything kind of approaches. And then, of course, this more human um perception of, of trust towards anyone who holds the ownership over this infrastructure. So I can definitely see that it's probably not easy to convince investors of investing into smart cities. You are now at the stage of being very, very far already in your career. I mean, you're a vice president for this real estate fund. Can you tell us a little bit about your current career status, how you got there, and what's your main drive in the sector? What's the change that you want to bring about? Yeah, so I am very passionate about the built environment because I actually went into college with an international development focus. I went, I studied at um, Wharton Business School, but with the goal of creating and using business to make change for global development. And it was through a gap year that I took um, in college, actually, where I decided to spend time in different developing countries and every continent. And my learning from that was 
hugely that you need very basic physical things for anything to mm. get started. Um, like you need roads and office buildings um, and electricity before you can ask for a certain level of foreign direct investment or for mm. employment or you know any other economic GDP creating um, functions in in an economy and these economies also don't have strong political systems. So at the end of the day, the the physical elements of a city or a country, to me, are the first step. Mm. Um, and that is that's something that I can see as a tangible impact, physically, visually, um, which is really satisfying to see a project that I worked on in Cambodia when I was doing this gap year many years ago, now that um, now that city is bustling and mm. um, it it's something that I continue to work on in my career is thinking about how can building reduce the negative effects of gentrification? How can it improve social welfare? How can it improve the environment when any building is technically bad for the environment, but how can we, it's inevitable because we as a human race are, are growing in number and how can we design our spaces on this earth in a better way to, to live better together as humans, but also with, with the planet. Would you say that smart cities by themselves having talked about economic development and we are of course very conscious that there's huge gaps in economic parities across the world. Do you think um, that smart cities are the curve or the cause of widening socioeconomic inequalities? So I definitely see it as the cure. The other element of smart cities is improving, you know, roads in India where citizens can take pictures of potholes and have their government fix it much faster than they could before. Um, and in China, they've, you know, in really mastered modular building techniques, which instead of a building taking six months to build, it can take six weeks. Um, and so this, these innovative strategies have been tested and improved in emerging economies mm. in order to, in order to reduce inequality, but in order to improve public infrastructure. What I see it as also is once these systems are in place, there's a development curve. So at first, um, a lot of projects might seem to be sort of only accessible to the, mm -hmm. to the rich, but eventually that creates employment and that puts a country or city, a society on the development curve that will hopefully bring everyone up with them. It's a, it's a very sensitive topic because it's hugely dependent on the government's policies on things like working conditions, minimum wage, um, like labor rights in general, and affordable yeah. housing. Um, affordable housing is something that I don't think any government has gotten right so far. Mm -hmm. um, That sounds like a really inclusive approach. And I bet we have a lot of listeners here on the channel today that think, 
wow, that sounds like a great job. How can I get into that? How can I picture my day-to-day activities? So what is it that you do on a day-to-day basis to build smart cities? What does your job entail at the moment? Um, It's funny you ask that because I'm just jumping into a meeting in a few minutes um, with the government of Loudoun County outside of DC. We're building something called Innovation Station, um, which is going to be a massive development with a new metro line and meant to be very innovative as well, as the name says. Um, And we're partnering with the government in a way that the government is providing something called a TIF, which stands for Tax Increment Financing. And it's something that the U.S. mainly uses to Mm -hmm. um, involve the government um, in a financial way in order for the infrastructure to be built. So um, the government pretty much provides a loan that's repaid in future tax Um, earnings and property tax. And we're basically consulting with the um, experts on this for the government loan. We are constantly in contact with the engineers and architects um, and planners that um, are going to be essential stakeholders in this project as well. So that's sort of what the developer is doing. On my side, on the private equity level, um, because I'm managing other investments as well, mm-hmm. um, it's a lot of oversight to make sure that our developers on the ground are doing what they're meant to be doing. Um, and at the same time, managing our investors' expectations of what this project will be and making sure that our investors' priorities are um, met and um, accounted for within the project. And most institutional investors by now have made it significantly clear that environmental social issues are at the forefront of, of projects, of big, big projects. But it sounds like a very tricky environment to be in doing these negotiations with governments, with investors, and looking at the real estate sector by itself and especially these equity funds it's very male dominated there's like 80 percent of males in that sector how do you as a female deal with this type of gender inequality in your professional field yeah um so i also want to caveat that um statistic that real estate is is 80% male because um, that includes brokerage, actually. Um, and within my field of real estate investment, private equity, especially from the um, acquisition side and not just investor relations, you know, PR. Mm. Realistically, my field um, as a real estate private equity investor, the ratio is more like 95% male or higher. Um, wow. And that is something that personally I try to not really ignore, but not be bothered by. I'm at the point mm. where I'm so used to it that 
I notice it when I'm the only woman all the time on every single meeting um, or any single conference. But I try to use it to my advantage because mm -hmm. as a young woman of color in a group of 30 white men, um, when I talk, they have to listen. And <laughs> that is something I think that's undervalued in in these in these scenarios and in these industries. Um, and I think the value of male allies is also underappreciated. Um, I have my you know my boss is someone who speaks up for me, who um, makes sure that I'm included when people try to boot me out of email chains because of a or when people assume that I'm a secretary when they call and they try to ask for someone higher. Did that ever happen to you that you were just that it was um, assumed you are the secretary? Oh, all the time. <laughs> wow. All the time. Um, when you are in an industry where you are the only woman, mm. um, or there's the assumption that I'm a wife or secretary, um, there's an assumption that I work in asset management instead of acquisitions or investor relations instead of acquisitions. There's um, most of the time assumptions that I work in um, as an agent, as a broker, mm -hmm. rather than as an investor. People can't compute it in their head, even though I say the word and they um, literally still can't figure it out. Um, yeah, it's, or they think that, yeah, I, I work in, you know, private residential homes because they associate women. There's like selling sunset on Netflix. They think of women selling mansions and, you know, in their high heels. We are in 2021. You would think that this field would have changed already a little bit with now so much focus being on let's hire female, let's promote females forward. But especially in that sector, as also with general finance, what I can experience there is still a lot of work to do. What is like the the mindset and the strategies that you would that you would kind of recommend to someone that wants to go in that sector that helps you on a day-to-day -day basis? So my biggest recommendation with finance to women is I, I think a lot of people avoid going into finance because they think not only that it's a bro culture, but it's, you know, crazy hours. There's a world of opportunities still also in the finance and in the real estate and private equity markets for, for young females to dive into and to try out what they're best at. But do you have some mental strategies, some mindset that just, you would say, helps you as a mantra, as something that you would like to give as a brain fruit to our listeners? Ooh, I like this concept of a fruit, a brain fruit. <laughs> <laughs> um, I like to remind people all the time that studies have shown women apply for a job if they think they're 100% qualified for it. And men apply for jobs when they think they're 30% qualified for it. So 
a bit of a difference here of 70%. There is a huge difference. And women need to, I mean, kind of unfortunately, I hate saying that, like, we need to start acting like men, because I don't think masculinity is something that we should be trying to emulate. Thank you for saying that. (laughs) But um, I would say overconfidence is the opposite of imposter syndrome, which Mm. is also more common among women. Um, And I, I would say, you know, it's easy to say, be overconfident, be entitled, think like you're like the best at your job and that no one else is better than you. Um, and that every company should be dying to have you in their firm. Um, there's this nice quote that really got me thinking lately that was going like, don't be humble, you're not that great. And I would also say like, fake it till you make it because um, <laughs> the imposter syndrome, I have a lot of friends who have that still at, at various stages of their career. Um, you know, there's, I have a lot of friends who do mirror meditations and it's like, whatever you do that can get you there. I would say be overconfident. Don't be humble. Be entitled, even though it's a negative quality that we think of. Um, and it's, it's to account for reversing mm. everything in, in the patriarchal society. Um, yeah, I think we need this pushback to just s- turn the switch because with humbleness and with accuracy, maybe we don't get so far. Maybe there needs to be this period of now it's time to switch and now it's time to go into reverse mode. Reverse turbo mode. Uh, <laughs> wow, that sounds great. Thank you so much for this turbo and just inspiring session. I think we have a lot of brain foods that we can give to to the audience and for any females that want to go into real estate, into finance, into equity, I think this will be equity um, funds. I think this will be an inspiring session to to hear about and to get the courage and the brain foods to succeed. Thanks so much, Hannah, for having me.